This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Support for 100 Words, the podcast, comes from Talenti. When Talenti makes gelato and sorbetto, they tend to get a little overzealous. Did they need to use so many raspberries in their Roman raspberry sorbetto that the machine broke? Did they need to try 25 different chai teas to find the perfect spice blend for their vanilla chai gelato? Did they have to invent giant mint steepers to make their Mediterranean mint super minty? Does their obsessiveness make Talenti gelato and sorbetto the greatest? You be the judge. But yes, it does make them the greatest. And they're also the judge. Talenti, the delicious is in the details. Hey everyone, welcome. You are listening to 100 Words or Less, the podcast, and I'm your host, Ray Harkins. Hanging out, talking about music, whether that's of the independent punk and hardcore variety, whether that's pop punk, whatever genre you care about, as long as it's, uh, you know, not on the radio, sort of mainstream stuff, then that's what we're talking about here. And the guest this week is someone I am so excited to speak to because uh, he's he's been a person I've looked up to for a long time in regards to not only the music that he creates, but just kind of the person that he is in general. Mike Olander, he sang for a band called Endeavor. He also sang for a band called Burnt by the Sun, and he currently sings in a band called River Black, whose uh, record is just, I think it's out this week, if I'm not mistaken, if not in the very near future. You can find it on Season season of Mist, and uh, I've heard it, and it's awesome. It's If you are a fan of what he does, then you will love the record. And I'm, yeah, I just, I was so excited to speak to him. And I, this is actually a big, big shout out to my very good friend, Mike Minnick, who sings for the band Less Art. He also sang for Curl Up and Die, is one of my best friends. And he looks up to this dude uh, as well, even more so than, than me. And he kept bugging me like, dude, you need to have Mike on the show. You need to have Mike on the show. And we made it happen through sheer determination we did it and um yeah because i mean i met mike i want to say early 2000s uh my old band taken played a show with him at the lng club in connecticut if i'm not mistaken and uh, both mike and i were on tour together with both of our bands and we had <laughs> we had a moment where we're like man how how hard do we punish this dude like do you do, do we just go up and talk to him and just like act normal or are we gonna like get super nerdy about like Oh man, remember that Endeavor Envy split seven inch? Oh man, but yeah, we we, we played it cool, and fortunately, Mike was a great guy. So um, yeah, that's that's all for that for a moment. But uh, I have to tell you, please check out the Jabberjaw Media Network of podcasts. There are I'm not highlighting any specific shows this week, but just dive in there because I promise you, you will find other shows that are like minded, that have cool things going on. That uh, could be your new favorite show, you know, just add your repertoire. Like, don't listen to too many podcasts because I I, I personally run into that problem where I just always want to check out cool new stuff um, because just don't don't forget about this show. Right. But you can add some to your normal listening rotation because, uh, you know, we all publish on different days and uh, everybody likes to hang out with uh, different people on different days of the week. Right. <laughs> I'm acting like this is like part of your regular schedule and who knows, maybe you just be listening to this for the first time or maybe you are a regular listener, but, um, yeah, anyways, check out the Jabberjaw media network for that. And, um, let's see what else I have to tell you for those of you that have, uh, followed the, um, 
I was about to say saga, but that's technically what it is. Oh, there's there's some dogs barking in the background. You'll have to live with that. But um, my wife went in for another test. She's been uh, battling cancer, and she's it's looking very positive. So she passed another test of you know cancer in the system, and um, I can't really put into words how exciting that is because it you know it's one of those things where we always we we know the test is kind of rolling around. But it doesn't really start to hit until like, you know, maybe a day or two after she has given her blood and then we wait for the word from the doctor. Those are the days that are the worst because we're just sitting there kind of waiting. You know, I'm trying to keep busy, trying to keep my mind off of it. But when we get that call being like, oh, yeah, the blood blood work looks normal. It's like, oh, my gosh, thank you so much. So for those of you that continually check in, which is actually a lot of you, I really, really appreciate it. And I, I tell my wife, and she's like, that's really sweet. Because, <laughs> um, you know, she's not one for uh, putting herself out there. But, uh, yeah, I put everything out there. So thank you very much for those of you that have been checking in. And, um, yeah, I think that's all. Well, I, actually, I, no, that's not all. I went to a show and watched my friends in Less Art play. I know I just mentioned Mike a few minutes ago, but it just happened to kind of coincide with me watching them a couple nights ago. They played at the Observatory here in Orange County, and they were so good. I also saw Ages, which are, it's another friends band from back in the day, a band called The Rise. Do you guys remember a band called The Rise? Well, they kind of had a whole refused-ish thing going on, um, toured with them for a while, but the drummer for The Rise plays guitar and sings in Ages, who are a pretty straightforward, heavy rock band, and they do it really well. So anyways, that was a really fun show. Just a lot of a lot of friends, a lot of hangs. It was great to uh, yeah keep my mind off that because that was right in between those those days I was telling you about where I was waiting for my wife's test. But um, yeah, so yeah, that's uh, that's all I want to tell you. But uh, here is my discussion with Mike, great guy, and uh, very intelligent, very insightful, and I I loved it, I loved it. So here it is, and I'll talk to you after the show's over. And uh, I just remember, I think I was, it was like right when I was getting into, uh, you know, like punk and hardcore from, you know, like actually buying my own music and stuff like that. So, you know, 14, 15 years old and, um, you know, Network Sound was out here in Southern California. And I remember <laughs> listening to Crazier Than a Shit House Rat and I was like, I don't, I don't know what they're doing. I don't even know what this is. Like, I, like, yeah, it's aggressive, but like, I don't, I don't know. Like, it just didn't sit in my head anymore. I was like, I was like, I don't understand this. And then, constructive semantics came out, and I was like, okay, like, I, I got it a little bit more. But it wasn't one of those things until, like, frankly, Burnt by the Sun is what made me retroactively appreciate all of your previous work. I don't know. It's kind of weird how that works, but I'm sure that there's instances that you can think in your head where, you know, if you're introduced to a certain band at a certain age and you might not like be mentally ready to (laughs) tackle that music, if it is something that, you know, is is a little bit more challenging. Does that, you know, does that make sense to you? Oh yeah, completely, man. I mean, I, I, I can't even count the number of bands I've found that way where you, you know, you hear it and you're just like, yeah, you know, you just don't get it yet. And even though birth isn't the world, the difference between Endeavor and Birth by the Sun, um, 
I can, I, I feel what you're saying, you know, if, if, if not just music, but just like conceptually and stuff, you know, so I'm glad you finally made it or your, your way around. <laughs> <laughs> no, totally. And I, it, and I think frankly, it also, uh, it helped kind of, uh, contextualize what you're doing with Endeavor, where I understood, I, I was able to kind of see the through line of, you know, the consistencies of what it was you were, uh, and still are as a, you know, lyricist and frontman and stuff like that, where it was like, oh, so like the seeds were planted in constructive semantics. Like I just was able to trace that much better than, you know, if I was just kind of dropped off in the middle of a record and been like, oh yeah, here's the Spurt by the Sun record. And like, there's no, you know, devoid of context or whatever. Yeah, you know, and I'll tell you though, but my the head the context of those those two eras is is our, our worlds apart because my head was in such a different space, especially back in the semantics era. I mean, I was out to change the world through music, man. Like right. I, I, you know, I was out to try to do for politics, uh, progressive politics in music, what Earth Crisis did for veganism and environmentalism, you know, and. But the time I got to Burnt by the Sun, it was sort of like, you know, I mean, you could take up a few people here and there right. <laughs> who, who look past the music and, and all that and are actually interested in the message, and they'd be cool. But back then, it was just full on. I didn't, I didn't even care about the music. It was just, it was for me, it was 100% about the message. So. Right. Yeah. No, that's interesting. That's a very good point because it definitely, um, yeah, I mean, I think it happens with most people as you grow older, you know, the, the edge softens and you realize that, you know, you catch more flies with honey or whatever, whatever the, you know, the, the, the euphemism is, but, uh, but it, you know, at the core of it, like, it's not like you abandoned, you know, the things that were meaningful for you in those previous iterations. They were just like, you know, like you said, more, you know, tempered or whatever. Yeah, well, the way I look at it is I've gotten so, you know, um, you know, for me, the, the timeline started when I got into, into skateboarding, um, which is when I was like 12 years old. And, you know, it attracted the skating because it was so different from, you know, anything else. And that same energy, you know, from that I found out about hardcore and punk, you know, through like Thrasher Magazine and, and made the connection. And then even like with some hip hop, like Public Enemy and stuff. And uh, then the more I got into that music, the more I got to the, the heart of that, that ethic, which I found in, in, in politics. And, and uh, with music, I was, you know, using, kind of continuing that tradition and using music to try to deliver that message. But at, at some point, I guess, I was like, you know, I realized that rather than trying to find a needle in a haystack, why not just go to to, to the needle factory? <laughs> you know, just right. go to where go to where politics is and where it lives, and, and try to affect public policy and 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 all that directly, rather than trying to bait people in with music or not bait people in, but you know, use music um, to express certain things with the hopes that it's going to result in some type of social change. So, um, for me, it, it, that, that was a hard pill to swallow for me to like during those endeavor years for me to be going to the shows and being like, dude, kids just want to come here and like mosh and like kick, you know, and, and, and see how many like little girls, you know, 12 year old girls with backpacks, they can, you know, karate kick in the back, you know, and, you know, we used to shut down shows. We used to stop playing when that type of stuff would happen, you know, cause that was so not what we were about. Um, but you know, and we would run into people, you know, periodically who were really moved by the, the, political messages. Um, 
but they were just very few. And, and, and again, at that point, I really started making the shift with school. Um, I had uh, gotten really involved with some organizations. This was back when I was in college and really just became devoted to, to putting all my energy in that. So that punk ethic really, you know, in my mind, I kind of, the way I kind of took it was, man, if you're real serious about this, then get serious about it. You know, and I mean, you can't, you won't stop doing music because you'll always love that. You'll always want to do hardcore and and um, and other types of aggressive music, and you're always going to have a message with it because that's just how I'm built. But at the same time, I'm like, look, you know, for for that part of me that needs to be out there advocating or that needs to be trying to do good work, I've got to, I've got to, I've got to go. I I know I can actually make an impact and if music results in some people here and there being touched, then great, but you can't count on it. That was the big thing. Yeah. Oh, it totally makes sense. I mean, I think especially in that era where the, you know, connectivity between politics and music was, um, you know, much more at the forefront. Uh, like, cause like you said now, you know, people show up to a show and it's like, you're not going to see, you know, dissert tables with, you know, vegan literature and stuff like that. That is a far less, uh, prevalent thing now, but then mm-hmm. so, something, I mean, there's a few ideas in there that I wanted to pick on, but one of them was, I always found interesting where, um, you know, just because of the geographical location where you were, um, you know, in Southern California, I always felt like there was this, um, you know, partially due to the proximity to a label like Ebullition Records, there was always this, you know, political nature in Southern California. And I feel in mm-hmm. certain, I feel in certain pockets that was also the case. Like, did you feel like it was for your, I guess, section as well, where you felt like, you know, no matter what, there was always going to be that sort of, uh, you know, political framework hung around a show? No, there wasn't. I mean, there were little pockets of it. Um, but, you know, what was going on in SoCal with, with Abolition and a lot of those bands really inspired me back then. And, you know, the with Endeavor, the first time we ever got picked up by a label to do anything was actually with Abolition on that, uh, that triple X comp, um, where it was basically, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with that record, but Absolutely. the compilation, <laughs> it's a, yeah, the compilation of bands of, of uh, songs from bands that aren't straight edge bands, but the members of the bands happen to be straight edge. And that I remember when Kent, you know, sent me that letter being like, dude, you know, be on this cop. And I mean, I was doing backflips because for me, like that bands like downcast and struggle and, and a few of the other bands that he was working with, like just that's where my head was at, man, at that time. I mean, cause I had taken that jump. I mean, I still was really into like New York city hardcore and, and the, the straight edge scene, you know, the revelation catalog, all that stuff. Um, but the, the, the more I got into the message of the music, the more I just gravitated to the political end of it. And so when abolition asked us to be on that comp, it was just like, hell yeah, man. And for me, it was such a big deal. Not, you know, not only because it, it spoke to where my head was at, but because the direction I wanted to take the band. And at that time it was a real struggle to keep together a band. And we had, we had like a dozen different members coming in and out over the, over a few years. Um, but also in our area, we had nothing quite like that, at least not concentrated like it was in Goleta or, um, you know, years later, even in uh, a couple years later in, uh, you know, Syracuse, the scene, the way that was centered around environmentalism and animal rights. And, you know, if you went to any of those shows in the mid nineties, you know, it was very common to see very, to, to see same thing that you would see out on the West coast in SoCal with, 
you know, right next to the merch tables or on the merch tables, there were, you know, clipboards to sign petitions and there were books that you can buy and there were jars to make donations to, to different organizations and there were flyers for different rallies or teach-ins and things like that that were coming up. And it was just, you know, that stuff was very few and far in between. And it's, um, I don't know to what extent it, it exists now, um, just because I'm not out there on tour anymore and, and, and hit a lot of those circuits, you know? Um, but that, that's, that vibe that you saw in, 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 in South Car- Southern California and also ABC in Rio and New York City. I mean, of course, the city had, had, had a lot of that going on, too. Um, that was something that was just um, really, for me, something that we hard, hardcore needed to see a lot more of because so much of it I had seen was centered around uh, the fashion aspect of it or, you know, just that kind of tribal urge to be part of a group, you know, and, and to be something unique, you know, to be part of that, that secret that, that the rest of mainstream society and, and the kids in school around, you don't know about that type of thing. And a, a lot of people were dicks <laughs> because of that, you know, and myself included like that, you know, it was for a while was like, no, nah, man, that's mine. You know, this is, this is special. You're not supposed to know about it. This is underground, you know? Um, but the more I dug into it, the more I realized actually the stuff that's the most valuable is the stuff that needs to be uh, pushed out into the community to actually help affect social change. Yeah. Oh, totally. I, I agree wholeheartedly. I, I definitely think that it was, you know, the, once I made the connective tissue of the idea that you can take, you know, I mean, you've heard this variation of a speech from, you know, almost every single hardcore singer that (laughs) existed and that had some sort of political tip where it's like, you know, you take these ideas and principles out of these four walls and you take into the real world. And like once in my own head, I made that connection. I was like, oh, yeah, that's way more important than going to like, you know, every single show and being like an active part of your music community, which was still important. But like you said, and I think, you know, your your life and your work has exemplified that like taking it and actually showing people that like oh this whole weird music thing that you're into like actually has some like backbone and like <laughs> some meaning behind it yeah yeah and, and and a lot more i think a lot of people thought that a lot of the political significance or social significance of hardcore and punk started and started with with um started and ended with you know a lyric sheet and with going to a show that was a benefit or that asked you to, you know, it's $5 and a can of food to donate, you know, but it was like, no, nah, man, it's actually, that's just the starting point. That's the, this is low hanging fruit. We know you're coming. This is an opportunity for us to kind of get you engaged in a very, um, low level way. Um, but you know, the important stuff is here. How do you use that out in the real world? And, you know, if, if you're not going to go out and be, you know, an activist or, or, or community organizer or lobbyist for something, you know, at least learn to, to, to be a responsible human being and a decent person who's, you know, gonna, gonna want to, um, support public policy that benefits, uh, people who need the help the most and not just, um, you know, allow you to, to, to make your fast track even quicker, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and you, I'm going to presume that because you had this, uh, you know, interest and soft spot for, you know, the political side of things in regards to music, was there any of that that existed, uh, you know, in the home at all? Like, you know, were your parents, 
um, I, I guess, engaged in, you know, pr- progressive activities and that sort of stuff? Or was that just something that you kind of, you know, stepped out on your own and were interested in? It was, I mean, they were, they, my, my father in particular has always had strong political opinions and he's been very independent. You know, he's, he's left on some things right on, you know, very conservative on other things. Um, my family was, uh, is, should I say, I say was, as if they're not here anymore. Um, <laughs> but I was a, the, the baby of five kids and, um, you know, a pretty evangelical Christian upbringing in New Jersey, uh, definitely like a Reagan household during, during the eighties. Um, you know, we had a, just as an example, uh, my, my brother, Bob, uh, who's about 10 years older than me was in the Marine Corps in, in the mid eighties. And there was this thing that happened in the Persian Gulf. And like my parents, my family made this huge banner and put it on the house and we had like rockets and bombs, like blowing up the middle East. I mean, it was like a, like a 20 foot band were across the garage for people to see going by. It was like one of those kind of, kind of things. <laughs> it's just a, to give you an example of what that was like. Sure. But at the same time, but at the same time, you know, um, my parents were always very appreciative of the, of the struggle for civil rights. And when I started to, uh, embrace that, um, you know, and asked a lot of questions about things like that. They were very, you know, encouraging and, and uh, very supportive of it. You know, by the time I got to high school, you know, I remember I'd gotten um, uh, like a Martin Luther King uh, or like a civil rights calendar or something, and I had taken all like the pictures out of it and like plastered my wall with it. So in between like the hardcore flyers and like the public enemy posters and stuff, there were like pictures of of like MLK walking as part of like the, the poor people's campaign and stuff. And, and they were, you know, maybe they didn't fully understand how far I was going with things in terms of how it connected to music and, and all that. Um, but they definitely, the parts of it that they understood, they, they appreciated it and they support it. Well, that's, that's cool. I, I, it's always, I find the struggle when you start to get into, you know, a uh, weird subculture to your parents with the music. And then you layer on top of that some other, you know, subcultury beliefs in regards to whether it's, you know, veganism, straight edge, like all those sort of things, even in, even though, yeah, yeah, even though inherently like parents should be excited about certain aspects of it, there, you're still adding so much to this, you know, stew of discontent that parents are like, what is this? What is my child doing? This looks terrifying. (laughs) Oh yeah, it was because you know you, you you hit the nail on the head because it's like all right, you know the, the ideas and concepts is one thing, and then there's you know okay you're bleaching your hair now and you're listen you know you, you listen to this crazy music that we are really don't understand and are kind of really nervous about because you know they were still re- remembering the you know the, the PMRC. Uh, trial days of them talking about, you know, Ozzy Osbourne and, you know, any, any, any like heavy, any music with like distortion on it past five on uh, on a Marshall amp must be like, you know, satanic music, (laughs) you know, that type of thing. Um, And so for them to hear like, you know, citizens arrest or something playing in my room, it's like, what is that? (laughs) You know? Um, So, um, and and then the, you know, for, for me that probably the, the biggest, challenge I had with, with, with my parents was where I had really starting to question organized religion and a lot and had gone my own way. And, uh, and that, that led to some real 
problems and some challenges. Um, right. But, you know, still the the overall idea, you know, I mean, my mom, you know, I remember real clearly her, you know, telling me, you know, she wants me to, I remember she asked me one time why I believed in one thing. And I had told her, well, because you and dad raised me to be that way. And she was like, no, you need to make up your own mind. You need to know why you believe what you believe. And that means, and that, that particular time we were talking about having something to do with, with Christianity, at that particular time, I remember she was like, that means that you deviate from what we taught you, then so be it. But we, we want you to to know what you believe, whatever it is, whether it's whether it's faith in God, whether it's you know politics or or whatever, you know you need to have your own opinions in this world. You need to know why you have gotten to that point, why you think the way you do and believe the way you do. So, in, in that way, my my parents were um, were really great, especially my mom. You know, she she and I had a lot of deep conversations during some uh, some periods of time that really helped. For me, validated, even if they didn't understood it, and even if they were sometimes when they thought it had crossed the line, they still um it was still good to know that there was still that that attempt to understand the un the un to understand those things that they had very difficult a lot of difficulty understanding yeah no that that sounds great because I think they're i mean I'm sure you could speak to this as a parent as well, where it's like the the notion that, you know, every parent is supportive and, you know, you're always encouraging. But then it's like when your kid pushes up to your own, you know, beliefs or, or core values or whatever, that's the ones where it's like, well, you know, like, are you really thinking about this? And like, if you can have a civilized discussion about it, which, you know, it sounds like you did with your, your mom and had these sort of heart to hearts, you you have to walk away being like, Hey, like they they've thought this through. Like this isn't just this isn't just them, uh, you know, acting out or whatever you want to call it. You know. Yeah, and and there was without going into detail, there 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 were definitely lines that were crossed where it was like, okay, you know, this we don't understand this here, and this isn't cool, you know. Um, and there were there were some consequences to that, but generally, you know, it was like, this is who we are. Okay, we don't, you know, we never quite understood skateboarding, and we, you know, this music and and some of these other things, and your friends all, you know, they're, you know, getting more and more tattoos by the day, it seems, you know. But that's all right, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Um, and so, what kind of kid did you find yourself being as you were, you know, going through high school and started to, you know be influenced by all the music you were getting into and, you know, skate culture and all that stuff. Were you, um, cause I don't know, just, I, I'm placing outward projections of, you know, what I know about you. You know, it seems like you might've been a person that could kind of get along with, uh, you know, a bunch of different groups of people, but you might not have felt at home in most of them, but you were kind of like, Oh yeah, Mike, like he's a nice guy. Um, or is that a completely wrong mischaracterization of, of my, uh, my perception yeah. of you? Yeah, I mean, I got along pretty well with, with everybody. I wasn't, like, super outgoing. Like, you know, I went to high school with, with Carl Severson, um, you know, who ran Ferret and runs Good Fight, um, and Josh Propel from, you know, Bullet Tooth and, um, and uh, Trustkill. And them two were far, they were both far more outgoing than I was, so they were much more, like, you know, had had deep pockets of friends across jocks and everything else and 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 other groups of people where I was, a, I, I, I wasn't reclusive, but I was more reserved. And, and for me, I was kind of like, you know what? I'm, I'm kind of, I get along fine with everybody, but I didn't, you know, I, I wasn't nearly as social as, as they were. Um, but yeah, I got along with everybody fine. And, 
that the, there was a one particular period of time which was <laughs> a little strange. Like I had gotten really, I think it was my junior year of high school, I got really, really, I get, here's the truth, I got my heart broken like bad by, mm-hmm. by this, this this young lady. And um, it was literally, it was, I straight up fell in love and was completely demolished. It was just like, it, it was awful. Really broke me up. And uh, all I listened to, man, was like sheer terror and SFA for like a year. And it was just like a way to kind of deal with the anger and the depression that I was feeling. And it was like every day I was wearing like an SFA or a sheer terror shirt or, you know, or like a skate shirt or something. But there was a period where I was wearing these chokers around my neck and I had two pins <laughs> Uh, two little buttons. One of them said, I hate people. And the other said, people hate me. I just wore it around my throat for like a year. And (laughs) I remember Carl telling me like, I think he told me like after we graduated. So it was like a little lady was like, dude, yeah, that, 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 what's her name? That chick, man. She she thought you were hot, but you know what she told me? She was like, yeah, that guy Mike's real cute, but man, he's kind of scary, man. He's got like this, like people hate me thing around his throat. I don't even want to talk to him. So I was like, I was all bummed out. I was like, man, I had probably had a chance to get over that, that breakup really easily by just like being more social. But instead I, I kind of just like, you know, listened to SFA and sheer terror 24 seven and kind of just let it uh, take over me for a while. So it was kind of funny. <laughs> Dude, that's, yeah, that's amazing. Like, especially when you can retroactively look at something and be like, Oh yeah, I can see why people reacted that way. <laughs> like, yeah. Like now I think about it and I'm like, Oh my God, like, what was I thinking? Like, what do my teachers think? And like, right. how come I, and that was one of those things where I'm like, why didn't my parents say something to me about that? <laughs> totally. <laughs> totally. Yeah. yeah. It's like, Hey, Hey Bob, you think you could, uh, you could have jumped on that grenade <laughs> for me? Like just, just say, Hey, maybe take out those buttons. It might be a little easier to approach. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, yeah. and so that, so that as you started to, you know, like I said, be more influenced by, you know, go to shows and, uh, putting all that stuff in your head, did you immediately get taken by the idea of playing in a band or was that something you had to work your way up to? Oh yeah. I, I was, you know, I, I wanted to do that really, really early on when the first time I went to a show, um, and, and saw just how casual it really was and how it was just anybody up there and how after the set, you know, the guys, the bands were just out in the crowd hanging out and, you know, I mean, you actually see it and feel it and you're like, whoa, I just talked to the guitar player from that band. And, you know, you soon after realize it's not really a big deal, you know, but at that moment you realize like how special it was. It wasn't like, Hey, that's a rock star that I'm talking to. It's more like a, wow, I'm part of something really, really cool because here the people who are on stage, the people who are here on the, uh, you know, on the floor at the show are just as much a part of the scene as the people who are, um, who are making the music and the records, you know, and that was really, really just awesome. So I wanted to start a band so early on. Um, I would plug in my, my dad's stereo in the living room at the time had a, had a little microphone you could plug into it. And I used to play records you know, go to like the, and sing along to them. Like and any record that had an instrumental song on it, you know, I would write lyrics to and, and I would sing it. And then I would record it with a boom box in the room. And, you know, I would just kind of try to figure out what my voice was like and stuff. And, and I had literally a box of lyrics that I had written before I was ever in a band. Um, 
So that was starting probably like 14 or 15, and then 16 or 17 is when the, the first group of, of us who actually would become Endeavor, the band Endeavor, uh, actually started writing and playing together. Wow. wow. <laughs> That's funny because I was going to ask this a little bit later, but it seems like a perfect time to bring it up where, because your, your vocals are weird. Like that's, just, you know, you don't sing, you don't scream like most people. And I think, you know, that's why you have people that have followed you for years and years. And, you know, you, the reason I like the way that you sing is because you inspire reaction. Like people immediately are like, oh yeah, that sounds sick. Or like, dude, that sucks. I can't get into it. Like, that's terrible, you know? <laughs> and so I, I, I find it, uh, I, I find it interesting that you were, you know, you were belting it at a, uh, at an early age and you were, you know, kind of, uh, figuring out what you could and couldn't do because ultimately, you know, where you landed was, you know, incredibly unique from that, that kind of perspective. Um, did, did, I guess, did you feel like what you were doing was uniqueish from that perspective or was that just something you just don't even pay attention to because that's what you know how to do? No, I just was just trying to figure out what what my body was capable of doing, you know, and I had the first Endeavor demo that we did, I was still in high school, and that was pretty much just all, you know, yelling. Um, And then the second demo we did, I I tried to, like, you know, expand a little bit, and there's actually some, like, you know, real attempts at me trying to sing during some of the parts, and it's, it's straight up awful, but... You know, I, uh, before long, I realized, like, no, this isn't, like, my, that's not really my comfort zone. You know, I really, for me, just prefer to be much more direct because of where the the vocals were coming from. You know what I mean? Or where the lyrics were coming from. For me, it just felt, it felt much more appropriate to have them, you know, yelled or screamed rather than, you know, me, like, singing and and trying to actually hold notes. Um, So... I mean, th- thanks for saying that it's unique in that sense. I never really felt that way. I mean, in my mind, when I was trying, especially when I was first trying, you know, I was trying to sound like Mike Judge. Um, <laughs> I, lo- I love that. And, and, and I sound nothing like that no. dude at all. <laughs> but <laughs> in my say. mind, it was like, it yeah, was there's, like there's, dude, there's, I'm, there's, I'm, I'm, I, I got to, you know, I got to do this like Mike Judge. And which is weird because even the early stuff, I, if I ever listened to it, I'm like, I sounded nothing like that guy at all. But it, it's, it was one of the things that had inspired me. Um, him and, and Scott Angelicos from, from Blood Flat, um, those were, you know, Scott was a little later, um, mm-hmm. uh, probably when I was like a senior in high school, a couple of years under my belt with Endeavor, that that influence started to dig into me a little bit. Um, you know, just trying to go a little bit deeper and trying to hold screams longer and stuff like that. That came from Scott. Like I really liked that with with, with what he was doing. Um, but yeah, you know, um, initially it was just trying to find what kind of works with my voice and um, and and that took all kinds of variations too, not just the tone, but you know, with a lot of the Endeavor stuff, like I was saying earlier, for me, it was all about, you know, the message, you know, and getting the words in. And it was like, okay, I've got this, 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 the, you know, lyrics for this song that's like an, like a, you know, like a 500 word essay. <laughs> right. And, you know, I've got to cram them in this song. So that means every single part I got to sing over. And it's just like, dude, there's all this information in this song. <laughs> Is that necessary? Do you need to go overboard? And, and, 
you know, after after some years, especially with Burn by the Sun, I I learned how to be, you know, let let parts breathe more and, and try to actually work with the song a bit more and and you know, just adapt to the the concept that less can be more if you have your words have more in, impact individually and the delivery too. You know, you don't if you're if you're going 110 percent the whole time, you know, people are like, okay, you know, there's no there, there's no context, you know, there's no um, um, dynamic at all. Everything is just 100 percent, and that's it. Whereas what I try to learn to do over time is to is to try to pace out a little bit more, so it's uh, it's got a little bit more of um, of an impact, if you will. So it took a long time to kind of to figure that out, and um, I, I look back at some of the earlier stuff with some uh, some embarrassment, just because there's um, you know a lot of trial and error, and and some of it like worked, and some of it I hear, and I'm like, yeah, man, I remember that moment, and I remember what I was feeling when I wrote those lyrics, and then other I was like, dude, what was I going for in this part? Right, <laughs> right. Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, cause, I mean, a lot of the times you you know clearly have no idea what you're doing like most you know kids like you're just figuring it out and you're like i really like the idea of how you laid it out where it's like all right dude i've got these you know this this 5000 word essay and i'm going to i'm going to fit it in here and like there's no like there's no concept of like oh maybe i should edit this down it'll have more of an impact it's like no no <laughs> no way dude that's that, that will that will dilute the message i got to get this all in i love that yeah <laughs> Like, don't sell out, man. Don't sell out and cut that line. <laughs> so good. So good. Hey, pardon the interruption, but I have to tell you about our awesome friends at Simple Mobile. I know the summertime is is winding up. Maybe your vacations are ending. Maybe you're thinking about going back to school or, you know, back to work on a more full-time perspective. But I don't care what you're doing. Music is such an important part of our lives that if you don't have access to it at any given moment, you feel deprived you feel cut off i've been in those situations where it's been like oh oh man i want to i want to hit that playlist or i want to listen to that specific record but i get blocked either my reception isn't very good or i have reached my data limit it's horrible horrible stuff so what i want to tell you about is simple mobile because they offer nationwide coverage on a blazing fast 4g LTE network, so you can access everything you want from downloading podcasts on the go to breaking music news, whatever it is, and then you will be able to dial it in and not worry about the whole data issue that sometimes occurs. And better yet, their truly unlimited high-speed data plan is just $50 for 30 days, so you'll have extra cash to you know go to shows, buy vinyl, whatever it is that you do, you'll be able to do more of it. And then they give you the freedom to stream, post, share, whatever it is that you want because you have no limits. It's awesome. But please always refer to the latest terms and conditions of service at simplemobile.com. But trust me, this is the real deal company. They care about making sure that you have access to the stuff that you need at any given point. And Simple Mobile is your partner for everything in regards to that. So thank you very much, Simple Mobile. And now on with the show. You were, you know, when Endeavor was touring, um, you know, there was no notion that m- most of the bands in aggressive music were going to be able to, quote unquote, make a living, you know, as far as <laughs> coming home with uh, money at the end of a tour. Like that was, you know, a very, a very foreign concept for most bands. Um, e- you know, even the yeah. ones, even ones that were arguably really successful, they, you know, would return home and work at their bagel store or whatever. But you know, was there ever, 
ever any other path for you from a, you know, career or profession standpoint? Or, you know, did you just want to solely focus on the music and then, you know, the, the political message that you had behind that? Or, you know, how did that all kind of transpire? You know, money, you know, I, I like a lot of people, you know, I, I got, you know, for me, the, the, the commercialization of hardcore and punk was something that, you know, I was always at odds with, you know, and I remember when Victory Records first started putting barcodes on their record and how that was like a huge, you know, people were freaking out. And, and, uh, I remember like Evolution saying they'll never put a, a, a UPC code on any record, and all that stuff. And that's where I was at for a long, long time. And even when like Burnt by the Sun had, we're not Burnt by the Sun, but what Endeavor had, you know, we were working with, um, uh, we first worked with Sarah and then we were working with, um, with conversion, you know, um, uh, for, for a record they, they had released to do the re-release of the shithouse rat record. And then with trust kill, you know, I, at that point, I, I was always still pretty uncomfortable with the commercial, the commercialization, making money off of the band never was the farthest thing in my mind. For me, it was okay. We, we made enough to be able to eat stuff. Like we could, we could go to like Wendy's super bar for five bucks and we could all like kill it and or Taco Bell or whatever and and we could get gas and if there's some money left over that could get us like more merch to make for the next time we go out then we're to put on side for recording purposes like awesome but there was never any any commercial interest at all um for really for a long long time when Bird by the Sun you know came into play around 2000 it's still, for me, it was very similar. Um, it, it was less being that it was, you know, more of a metal, metal band in the metal scene. You know, we're, we were signed the relapse and stuff and, and we had a deal for the first time. We really dealt with lawyers with the contracts and all that stuff. It was never, you know, there was obvious commercialization to it because we were dealing with publishing deals and all of other type of stuff, but it was never for me. And that was never in my mind, like, okay, this is going to be a career or this is going to be a revenue stream for me or, you know, a source of income for me. It was still really about, you know, being a part of something really, really special. You know, when Burnt by the Sun rolled around, even though, you know, it was not a hardcore band, um, I was still, you know, motivated by the, the love of that, you know, of aggressive music because of who I was playing with. I mean, I was playing with, with John Anabata and, and, you know, playing with two of the guys from Human Remains, uh, Dave Woody and Ted Patterson, and John Anabata, who was, you know, one of my other favorite guitar players around from that Jersey era. And I was psyched because I was, I mean, we were friends before, but I was fans of them as well. So when they asked me to, you know, check out this new project that they were doing and that they had me in mind to sing it, they were like, yeah, like we either have you or if, if you're not interested, we're going to go talk to, to Tim Singer from, from, you know, Dead Guy Kiss Goodbye. And, you know, I was like, well, <laughs> like, well I'm not going to let Tim have this. <laughs> right. Like, number one, that band with Tim Singer would be awesome. But, you know, I, I want this at this and this is this is a dream for me. So, um you know, the motivation there was really like, okay, I got to, I got to step up to the plate and I got to be able to try to do my best to perform at the level that, you know, um, is that, that justifies me being in a band with these guys, you know, I got to be much better than I was in Endeavor. Right. Um, um, 
but at the same time, you know, I, I still, you know, that, that one of the things I really liked about my approach was not just the fact that I, my vocal tone or how I was on stage, but the fact that, that I really had a strong message to the lyrics. And that was something that they made really clear that, you know, they really liked about me and my approach. And that was something obviously that ran all throughout that band and runs through River Black now. So that was cool that they were, you know, they saw with me the value in having me on board was not just the voice that would fit well with this music or the phrasing or whatever, but also the message orientation and, you know, the way we would do our live shows, especially as we got, you know, we're dealing with the more metal audiences. They were not used to somebody talking for two minutes in between songs about right. certain topics, you know? And for a while, you know, that was a little bit of an adjustment for us. And sometimes it did not go over well, you know, and I kind of had to figure out, okay, here's where the line gets crossed. You know, this ain't, this ain't Syracuse or ABC in Rio where you can talk for 10 minutes in between songs about a political issue. You can't, that's too much, but you can toe that line and you can still have a different impact and bring something to the table that they're not getting from any of the other relapse bands, you know, and that wasn't to diss any of the relapse bands because so many of those bands were so sick with what they did. But for us, the message orientation and stuff, that whole package of what burnt by the sun was, I think kind of made it special. Um, so again, a departure from endeavor, but still rooted in, in something much, much, much far beyond any commercial interests. Yeah, got it. Right. That's the, I mean, that makes sense when you are, um, yeah, when you're, you're not interested in that, it's just like, well, this is just an expression. And like, all these are, is like a collection of experiences as opposed to this is this, I need to make this thing into my job. And you know, that's when you kind of blur the lines between, you know, art and commerce and all that, the age old uh, argument that uh, lies within that. But that's, uh, no, it's cool that you always kind of had this uh, sort of church and state separation of like, Oh, this is like, this is just what I do as opposed to, this is how I'm going to make, you know, ends meet, so to speak. Yeah. And, and that's even, even more so now with river black, because, you know, Ray, when um, the guys were doing this, and, and this project has been going on for some years since Burnt by the Sun folded up, um, and the guys had been in contact with me, you know, the, the River Black's gone through a few different singers, and, you know, the band's been under different names and, you know, didn't release anything. Um, and each time they would work with a singer and it just not work out, um, you know, they'd reach out and see if I was interested. And for me, the timing and everything really wasn't there. I really wanted to be focused on being a, a dad because I was a new dad and, and, um, and my work. And, um, when time finally came around this, this last time they reached out, um, really timing had worked out for me because I was felt in a good space where I was as being a dad and, 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 for the first time, felt like, you know what, I can step into this music space again and not feel like I'm neglecting my family by, by being selfish with my time. Um, and also work-wise, too, I figured out a way. It's like, you know what, I'm, I'm in a, a good place with work now where I can, I can step away um, from some of that and allow myself to be creative in this way. And right now, I feel, I feel more than I have in a long, long time, like I'm back in high school again, like starting with a band, just because none of us, you know, none of us need to do this band. It's, we're, we're doing it because we want to do it. You know, the other guys, you know, Municipal Waste and Revocation and, and John is, is, is doing 
you know, a, a new business on top of his normal career and stuff too. So everyone's super busy with our stuff and we're doing this because we love playing together and we love doing this music together. And for us, it's a matter of being like, let's go out and let's have fun and let's make a contribution again. And as long as we're not like, you know, going into debt, you know, and, and, and coming out of pocket with stuff and, you know, and trying to justify that to our wives, um, (laughs) then cool, you know, then, then let's do it. Let's just focus on that. And who cares if, you know, you know, record, you know, obviously I don't think they're doing, I don't even know they do sound scans anymore with records that get sold, but it's like, I don't care how, what the record sells like, you know, I don't care what reviewers have to say about it. I care about what people who, you know, I know and love through music have to say about it, you know, and, and, you know, so far that, that feedback has been great and it's been very encouraging and that's cool. And, and, and for me, it's, it's a, a nice way of being able to get back involved with a band with, with, um, very, um, with, with, with no expectations, uh, right. for what comes next. Yeah, no, that's super exciting. Yeah. Like you said, that's, it, 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 in, it, in so many weird ways, it ends up being, like you said, just like what you did when you first started to play with friends. It's, it's such a beautiful space for so many bands to be in now where it's like, oh yeah, like we don't need to worry, like we don't need to worry about the, the context of, oh man, we gotta, we gotta play 150 shows this year. It's like, no, I don't have to do that. <laughs> I don't want, I, yeah. not only do I not have to do that, but I don't want to do that. It doesn't sound very fun. So yeah. Mm-hmm. The, um, so that, you know, then separating, like we were talking about before, the idea that you were never going to, you know, make money off the music that you performed, um, you know, you, you, you dove into, you know, a myriad of, of things that were all centered around, uh, you know, your, the political movements and context and working for nonprofits and stuff like that. So kind of walk me through your, your journey um, in regards to that, because all of it, from what I can tell, was all attached to... Um, you trying to get back to communities in separate ways. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess it goes back to like mid nineties and I start volunteering for different organizations. So um, there was a a group up in or a a political party that was based up in New York state called the new party, which used to run fusion tickets. And I started volunteering with them. Um, And a couple of little things like, um, 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 uh, health health co-ops and stuff like that I would volunteer at. But um, mainly it, 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 things started to go into high gear when I was at, at Rutgers, and um, I went into a, an Amnesty International meeting one day. And I, I walk in, and I don't know how much you know about AI, but, you know, there's obviously a you know, national or international um, human rights watchdog organization. You know, they, 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 they collect... Um, anecdote or um, um, accounts of human rights abuses from around the world. They report them in. The, the, the organization, you know, uh, send, sends out the sirens and their letter writing campaigns from all around the world that put pressure on governments that should clean up their their act in terms of human rights records, among other things. So, I walk into this this low, this Rutgers chapter of, of Amnesty International. It's a small group and it's pretty low energy. And, you know, we walk in and we're talking about, 
you know, the kind of the standard meeting there was they'd sort of read from the, the newsletter that just came out, and then they would write letters to, you know, whatever government was. So there they are talking about Indonesia um, with some human rights violations. And, you know, I'm like, well, what are we really going to do about this? Like, what can we do aside from just write letters? And they're like, well, what are you talking about? And I'm like, well, let me ask you, what good is this going to do? Five college students here writing letters to the government of Indonesia. I was like, you know, you know what's going on down there, man? There are people getting shot, students getting shot in the face by American-made weapons. I mean, Indonesian, man, we need to go, we need to take this to our own government, <laughs> not, to, not just to the Indonesian. So it was kind of like lighting that fire up under there, and they were kind of looking at me like, oh, who's, who's this kid, you know? Right. Um, I, go, I go to the second meeting, man, and the president there is like, yeah, so guys, as you all know, um, I'm stepping down from this role, and, you know, we need to figure out who's going to be the next president. We've been holding this off for so long or whatever, and everyone's just kind of, like, looking at each other, like, I, you know, don't, you know, so I raised my hand, and I'm like, I'll do it. And then everybody voted me in, and my second meeting there, I was president of this Amnesty <laughs> International chapter, so... You know, that was just like, okay, man, here's the opportunity. You got a budget. Rutgers University gave you a budget. Let's do some stuff. So we had speakers. We had teaching. You know, we, we helped raise money. We, we helped uh, organize rallies when, um, you know, the Clinton administration was doing um, uh, foreign policy stuff we didn't agree with. And then, of course, all the other, like, you know, human rights stuff. And we had our own campus newsletter and, and stuff. And, you know, it, it was my first chance. I mean, you know, I was thrown right into the driver's seat and I couldn't believe, you know, just because I couldn't believe that nobody else was like going to step up and do this. And I saw the opportunity to do it. So, you know, I went from one, you know, one week stepping in and kind of turning heads with some comments and the next it was like, okay, here's the keys to the office and and here's the keys to the mailbox (laughs) and here's, here's what your budget is and, you know, figure it out. Good luck, you know? And it was like, all right, you know, and, that wound up, you know, I finished school up, you know, a year or so later. And, um, what'd you study, by the way? Wound up. What's that? What'd you study, by the way? Uh, political science. I figured. Okay. Yeah. I just wanted to make sure. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. So I had been also, um, working a bit with a group called School of the America's Watch, um, which, which is a, a group that keeps an eye on this, this training facility that's at Fort Benning, Georgia. That was, had a record of training uh, um, counterinsurgents from Central America. Um, uh, and many of these folks had wound up like being pretty gross human rights violators. So um, I had done some work with them, had helped raise them some money and stuff, and was offered a job by them right as I had finished school. And I kind of freaked out. And I was like, wait a minute, because it was, it was the type of thing where I had student loans that were going to be coming, and with that organization, it wasn't like a normal salary. It was like, you know, like a lot of nonprofits, it's, it's all depending on, on fundraising, and you got to basically raise funds for your salary, and that was something I knew nothing about. So, like, you know, helping raise money for other organizations, fine. Like, but for me, just the idea of, like, having that insecurity um, really just freaked me out, to be honest. And I wound up turning it down, and which did not go over well, and wound up saying I'm going to look at something more more local. And 
um, a couple of years later, after a couple of years after I graduated, I wound up getting a job with a um, a group called Citizen Action in New Jersey, and um, from there learned how to be a community organizer, um, and did that. You know, focused in, in Central Jersey, and you know, learned a lot. I got went to a place called Midwest Academy, which does um, community organizing training. Um, I've gone there a few times for things and just learned everything from how to organize issue campaigns and do press conferences to how to build coalitions and, you know, talk with legislators in a way that that will make them hear you and, and all that other type of stuff. Um, you know, did some work on some bills uh, in New Jersey um, and I had found that a lot of our issues had worked a lot with, um, with, um, with older, older people, um, whether they be utility issues or fraud issues and things like that. And, uh, from that, I wound up uh, kind of taking on, on the jump, uh, to, um, work with another organization, an epic national nonprofit, um, that focuses on specifically on, on 50 plus issues, which is where I'm at now. Um, and it had been for the last 10 years. So kind of the, 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 the start was, was, was me just kind of walking in into the, the Amnesty International uh, meeting and, and having that kind of that opportunity thrown in my, in my lap uh, to where we are now, you know, um, you know, many years later. And, you know, having mailed out in a lot of ways um, in certain things just because you, you see what works and what doesn't work in that field. And, you know, especially now with the political climate that's out there where it's just, in my opinion, I think you've got a lot of legitimate concerns on both sides of, of the political spectrum and a lot of misunderstanding in the middle. And I think a lot of it is rooted in, in campaign finance and a lot of it is rooted in the, um, actually, I would say campaign finance really specifically since uh, Citizens United because you know, your average member of Congress spends 25% of their time on the phone raising money. And with the way these PACs are now being able to give unlimited amounts of money, you know, a political opponent slips up, says something wrong, and immediately, hours later, you know, fundraising emails shoot out um, that are very divisive. And you see what so-and-so is doing. This is what they said, and you've got to give us money so we can fund them back. And right. it's led to this environment where we're at, you know, where... It's, that's where Congress is motivated, and people are at the position, I think, in a place now where they're so used to turning on certain news outlets and are being told who to blame for their problems or for the problems of the country. Um, and in many cases, they're very ill-informed. And I say that, honestly, of, of both sides. I, I see a lot of it on, on both sides. And it's pretty discouraging because I think, you know, the smarter people are, the better it is for the country, and I, I see kind of a dumbing down in in a lot of ways on a, on, a, on a lot of issues that are really complicated. So it's really bittersweet that way because um, to work in that environment and to try to see, to try to make some kind of progress in moving the country forward is really, or community forward, is really, really difficult when... Um, you're in an environment that's got landmines all around you and people prejudging you before they know what you're about or what your or, or what your intentions are. 
Yeah, yeah, well, it's yeah, part partisan politics, which is yeah, like you said, the the world that we exist in now on both sides that there isn't uh yeah, there's no understanding from where each other is coming from in any capacity. No on, on a, a myriad of issues. So yeah, I, I can understand the uh where you're coming from. Yeah, and and the you know, the fundraising stuff perpetuates it, you know. So it's like, okay, you you like an organization because of their political stance or their advocacy work, so you sign up for their their e-newsletter or whatever, their e-list or their Facebook stuff. And now they're getting, ha- you know, they hammer you with all this stuff that may not be the best informed information. Um, and so, and for you, you know, we're in all in the day and age now where we can pick and choose where we get our information. You know, it's no different than picking, you know, what, what you want to eat for dinner that night or what flavor ice cream you want. It's like, this is what I like. This is what ju- this this is the political view that 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 justifies the the emotions that I have when it comes to you know my view on the world, and so that's all that I'm going to listen to. And it sucks because you've got people dumbing down and not knowing how to have conversations with other people because it's just like you know the mo- you know the, the kid defending the mommy. I don't like you because you know you you know you're bad because you don't like mommy, you know? And it's like, no, man, things are, the world's a lot more complicated than that. It really is. And unfortunately I don't see how we get out of that tailspin. Yeah, absolutely. Um, two last things I want to hit on before I let you go was the, um, you know, be partially because all of the, uh, the music that you, you know, made, especially with, you know, with Endeavor and Burt by the Sun is, um, you know, there was never any, um, sort of, you know, uh, crestfall, in regards to the band's popularities, like, you know, I burnt by the sun, you know, was arguably more, um, you know, quote unquote popular than Endeavor was, um, you know, sure. you, guys, you guys toured more and, you know, you had more people, you know, paying attention to what you were doing, but you definitely never crossed over into the standpoint of like, Oh my gosh, like burnt by the sun was huge. It's like you did well, but it wasn't right. something crazy. Um, whereas I, th- I, I think that I think for both of those particular projects, like, if they came, you know, as in with most things, came a few years later, there might have been more, you know, interest at the time, you know, the the culture might have been, you know, more ready for it or whatever. There's a million different things you can attribute that to. Um, did Was that something, you know, that retroactively you can kind of look back and be like, oh, yeah, we were doing a lot of things that were, um, you know, good or bad. They were, you know, challenging or they, they push people. They weren't really ready for that. Um, is, is that stuff that you reflect on those particular projects as as being so? Or is that just like, well, you know, I, there's nothing you can change. So that it is what it is. Yeah, not really. I mean, you know, we we always went at our own pace. You know, and, and we always did musically what we wanted to do. And, and we took tour offers that we wanted to take and, and other opportunities that we wanted to take. Um, and, you know, I remember, you know, there was a period, it was, it was after, it was, it was right, it was right around the time when we recorded um, the, the second Birth by the Sun album, The Perfect is the Enemy of the Good. And that was really when a lot of the more, you know, that kind of that, um, that resurgence of, of metal had taken over where you had a lot, you know, kill switch engagers blown up and shadows fall and God forbid. And, and a number of other bands were like, you know, it was land of God, of course. I mean, there was, there was stuff that was really skyrocketing up there. And, um, you know, it was like as new metal died, you know, kind of more, uh, uh, um, legit metal, should I say, kind of, kind of took over and got its second win. 
And I saw a lot of bands around us that were trying to conform to that. They were changing up what we were, what they were doing. And I remember us feeling pretty resentful about that just because it felt like, I don't know. It's, it's, it felt, it felt illegitimate and it might not have been, I never wanted to judge any of those bands. Um, not those ones I named in particular, but just others who were trying to do like those, those bands were doing. Um, and, and for us, it, it, it just kind of felt like, okay, we're maybe out of sync with what's selling right now, but that's okay. You know, um, because we we're doing what we want to do. And then when the time came, you know, we ended things and then we got back to do the final record, the heart of darkness record, that one, I purposely wanted like the vocals on that record are really raw. I mean, they're much more raw than, than the, the perfect record specifically because I wanted it to be like a, this is the antithesis of all of this stuff that's kind of going poppy and clean. You know, it's like, I want it to be like, yeah, we're back. We're doing this record. And in case you were thinking we're doing this for commercial reasons, here you go. And here's the opening screen to the record, you know? And I wanted people to be like, yeah, maybe just can play, play it on radio. Uh, nope. 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 (laughs) Not happening. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, um, that for me, you know, it, we were always. Uh, I I feel really good with where we where we kept the things with the band. You know, um, I mean, were there things that we could have done? Sure, but you know, we, you know, at the end of the day, um, I think we we wound up, you know, creating a catalog and 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 having an impact um, that a lot of other bands didn't have, even bands that were much bigger. Um, maybe sold a lot more records and went a lot more tours and all that other type of stuff. But, you know, every now and then it's, it's awesome how people will still reach out to me through Facebook or something and just be like, dude, I just discovered your band, you know, six months ago. And I just wanted to say thank you because I always wished that there was a heavy band that said these kinds of things. And I didn't know that it existed until I ran into you guys. Right. And to me, I'm thinking, well, there's a lot of us out there if you look, but, you know, for me to get that, it's just like, cool, man, you know, that's, that, that, that makes it all right for me at the end of the day. Yeah, absolutely. No, that's a really good way uh, of looking at it. Cause like, yeah, there are, you know, there is a, uh, an argument to be made that even though a band maybe, you know, from a sales perspective might be, you know, like th- twice or three times more as popular as, you know, any musical project you've done. Um, you know, that could be a band that is like completely forgotten about in two years where no one is because it was just music. There was nothing else. You know, it was devoid of context. There's nothing that anchors that band to anything. You know, it's like they could have existed mm-hmm. now. They could have existed 20 years ago. It didn't matter. Except, yeah, of course, sonically, there's probably differences. But, yeah, I, I like the I like that viewpoint of what you're talking about. Um, the uh, the last thing I want to hit on was, you know, like you you mentioned a little bit ago in regards to, you know, you being a father and, you know, have a family and, you know, the, the whole, the whole dad life starts to enter the equation and, um, you know, you're confronted with a lot of things that, um, the, you know, the influence that you have over these, you know, little human creatures are just like, Oh wow. Like this is, this is wild how this is happening. Um, how have you found your navigation with, you know, the fact that you were raised with a subculture and, you know, you had so many values, that were derived from it, you know, how does that sit as you, you know, encounter, you know, being a father and, and all these things that, uh, rattle around your head, I'm sure. 
You know, that's a great question. Um, and it's, it's tough because there are some things I think that are time sensitive, you know, and when you, you know, my kids are young, they're six and seven, you know, and there are in this stage, you know, it, it, you know, it's, it's critically important, you know, that they know things like right from wrong and that they know that, um, um, well, maybe it's, it's not quite right for them to know that they should feel that they can challenge certain rules and stuff at this, at this age, you know, come, uh, the time that they are teenagers, then that will be the real test, you know, because then it will be, okay, this is, you know, do I have the strength to be the kind of parent that my mom was with me wanting to be a free thinker, you know, even though they may come right out and openly defy the things that I hold very, very dear. You know, do I have the strength to be able to do that? And the faith in how I raised them to be strong, good people um, that ultimately they're, they're going to make the right decisions in their life and not hurt people, you know. Um, so for me, kind of, the, you know, the jury's not out yet. The, you know, it hasn't been brought into court yet. So right. No, that's, um, that's, a, but that's a very there, good there, point. But with, with other elements, you know, I know there are a lot of parents who, you know, is a, for me, one of the things I tried to keep away from as a, as a, as an early parent when my kids were first born was to try to like not make my kid as a clone of me, you know? So there are things like, you know, um, you know, introducing my kid to, to skateboarding when he was like two years old. And I remember we saw like, we met a couple, you know, Mike Valelli and, and, and some other skaters had a demo in our area and I made like this little Valelli t-shirt for him and we brought him and it was kind of like, okay, that's not, that's me kind of projecting myself on him and stuff. And, you know, Hey, isn't that a cool kid who's wearing Vans and, and who's doing that? It's like, he's a two year old. He doesn't, you know, he, he'd be wearing, you know, a, a paper bag if he gave it to him to put it on. <laughs> right, <laughs> no? right, totally. Um, and I, I see that too. I know there are a lot of, um, I think the truth is that with being a, a parent, in my view anyhow, is that, you know, where you can, you know, it's all about, the, the, you know, winning the small victories of, of the day with, with your kids, you know, and if at the end of the day, you know, you, you know, you can get them to, um, you know, be a good person and to, um, you know, learn how to do their best and, and how to treat other people right, then you've won it. My son is, he's seven, and the kid, you know, ever since he's been able to talk, he's been a negotiator, you know, I mean, literally, you know, my wife and I used to put more food on his, on his plate to eat than what we actually wanted him to eat, because we know, okay, whatever he puts on, whatever we put on there, he's going to try to negotiate down. <laughs> so we were like, let's stack the deck. Right. So when he negotiates down, he's going to eat the amount of food that we actually want him to, you know. And one day, that is going to be an amazing, you know, that natural instinct he has to be that kind of person who's going to challenge things and try to, you know, shuffle shuffle the court, the the, uh, the pieces around a little bit. Um, I think can be um, can be pretty, uh, you know, could, could make him a you know a pretty amazing person as he gets older. You yeah. Know? Um, so. I know a lot of parents who really try to mold their kids into how they are. And sometimes I think that stuff's really great. Like I see a lot of parents who are raising their kids to be, to be vegan or, or to do other things that are very socially responsible. And I tip my hat and I applaud that because I, I know that that's all got to be very, very hard to do. 
Um, but at a certain point, you know, I think you've got to be there. There's a point I think with parents who were brought up like we were with, with this scene to say, okay, uh, at a certain point, we, we've got to acknowledge that this kid isn't us and that, um, they're going to be their own person. And, you know, my kids hear my music and they laugh at it, you know, uh, some of it though. My son does have a vocal part on the, on the river black record, by the way. Oh, um, nice. Dude. Does, Love it. Yeah. He, he did it when he was six. It was, it's a little vocal bridge and he nailed it too. It was, it was, it's, it's pretty awesome. Um, but, you know, generally, you know, aside from that song, like the other ones he hears, he's just like, oh, daddy. Rah, rah, rah. Yeah, yeah, you're ter- <laughs> right. Totally. You're terrible, dad. You're terrible. <laughs> yeah. You know, so what, what am I going to do? Like make them listen to that in the car? It's like, no, 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 no. We're, we're, we'll listen to what you guys are, you know, are into and we'll have fun with it and stuff. And, you know, I'm just going to do my, my best to be the parent. So, yeah, that's <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it makes total sense. Uh, I actually, I have one last thing, and I promise I'll let you go. But I, I'd be remiss if I did not bring up your uh, your love for muscle cars. I don't know if that still exists, mm-hmm. but you, uh, you know, that like in many respects, like I mean, I'm gonna, I'm going to compare it to something in my own life that most people are just like, what the hell? Why are you into it like this? Like I, I'm super into. Yeah. Golf. Like, I love golf, and like granted, golf yep. and muscle cars could not be far further removed from each other, but. Um, yeah, so like, what what's up with that? What's up with you being into muscle cars? That's interesting. It, it, here's here's the quick and the, and the easy because I've actually I've actually got to fly to DC tonight, um, so I've got to uh, I'm catching an Uber in about six minutes. No, um, but no. I'm already I'm already packed up and ready to go. But um, I uh, I grew up in a, in a muscle car family. Um, okay. We had my dad had a had, had a couple of GTOs, and the one I remember um, was a was a '68 goat that he had, and that fan, that car was in our family for almost 30 years. And when I started my own family, you know, you know, I found you, you know, you instinctively we revert to the role models we had as kids in terms of parents role models, you know. And when I moved from New Jersey to Charlotte about four years ago, I really kind of felt like, okay, we know nobody here. This is all foreign. And in addition to, you know, my work here, you know, I'm, I'm the dad, you know, and I actually needed a new car. And I just said, dude, I got it. I love these challenges, man. I just, it, it spoke to me in a way that, um, that I couldn't really explain aside from it. Just, it, it felt me being a dad, that that's what it was about for me. So I've had four now. So I'm on my fourth, my fourth challenger. Nice. And I don't go, I don't go to the track. I'm not one of these guys who, you know, I, I'm part of like, I've been part of a, a, a couple of car clubs and stuff. Um, and you know, people who are like serious gearheads, you know, the ins and outs of cars. And I'm just kind of like, I don't know, man. Like, I can tell you a pretty good amount of stuff, but I'm I'm not like tuning up your car for you. <laughs> you yeah, know what I mean? Like, totally, totally. I'm, I'm not. I'm not like. I'm not like. Uh, you know, giving you like you know ignition timing specs and that other type of stuff. Like, I do not know that. But for me, it's it's just fun. A fun thing that I've been a part of, and I enjoy doing it. And my kids do it. I actually do a YouTube channel, Mike by the Sun, and. It's got different videos on there, and I've been doing, uh, I did a car video for my dad, who lives up in Connecticut, just so he could see one of the challengers I had bought, and uh, I said, oh, let me just throw it on my YouTube channel, Dad, and look at it, and then next thing I knew, there were like 80,000 people who watched it, right. and 
you know, seen how these things are. So um, it's it's a small, modest channel. I mean, there's probably like a thousand subscribers or something. But I've, I've got some videos that are over a hundred thousand views on them and stuff. So that's fun. Every now and then, I every now and then I pop them up and just kind of like give my take on buying cars and doing mods to cars and stuff like that. And so it's it's fun. It's been a, it's been a cool uh, thing for me to uh, connect with. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's really cool. I just, I, yeah, like I said, I was just, I was curious for myself more than anything else. But well, I'll, I'll let you, uh, I'll let you go catch your uh, Uber to DC and uh, safe travels. But thank you so much for coming on, dude. I honestly really appreciate it. Hey, no sweat. I actually got notification here. They gave me. Uh, I guess the guy's going to be a little longer than. I'm you ever do Uber before? Uh, yeah, yeah. I, well, I, I primarily do. Uh, I've, I've been doing Lyft for a while now. Same difference, but uh-huh. yeah, yeah. So yeah, they're 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 pretty solid. Yeah, every now and then it's like, okay, they'll be here in three minutes, and then, oh, no, seven minutes. So I'm like, okay, yeah. your, car's, your car's in the same place? How did that happen? Yeah, it's like the, there's, a, there's a glitch on the back end. But, um, yeah, well, regardless, thank you so much, Mike. This has been uh, enjoyable for me. No, thank you, Ray. I, uh, I appreciate it. Yes, that was Mike. And like I said, you need to check out his new record from River Black. It's really, really good. And uh, if you like that, you need to absolutely dive back into the archives of what he's done musically because it's all really, really good. Like I said, it's uh, in the interview. It's, you know, he has a very unique styling of vocals. And um, yeah, his, his bands are just that much better because of it. So thank you very much, Mike, for wanting to come on the show. And um, yeah, who's on the show next week? I'm glad you asked. We have Jake Smelly which I'm totally probably butchering it because it's S-M-E-L-L-E-Y. But anyways, Jake is the drummer for a band called Gideon. And this chat was deep. We talked a lot about religion and uh, his journey with faith. And it was a, it, frankly, it was a place that I didn't think that we were going to end up. I knew I was going to talk about his uh, Christianity. But in any event, that is what we got going on. And until next week, please be safe, everybody. You've been listening to the Jabberjaw Podcast Network, jabberjawmedia.com. Shh.